If you have your Bible, you can open it to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're in verse 12. And let's pray together. Father, make much of yourself this morning. Make much of yourself through your word. Exalt your name. Magnify your glory. And make Christ, our Lord Jesus, look beautiful through your word. Pray that this be done by the power and the working and the brilliance of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Thanksgiving is coming up soon. Uh, For many, dinner will start with a round of going around the table, people saying what they're thankful for. Nothing wrong with that. But whatever you are thankful for has a source. I mean, I see this a lot. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with being thankful for a particular thing. This morning, I was in my office, uh, about to come on out here after our time in prayer. And Jim walked in my office, and he goes, I have something for you. And he hands me this Green Bay Packers watch. He's like, put it on. And I'm like, yes, sir, because it's a Packers. And I, did, and I, and I told myself, I had a couple Packer analogies in my sermon. I took them out just for you Vikings fans, and just because, you know, I don't want to be all like Packer, 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 and then Jim comes in acting as, you know, the voice of God and says, put it on, Mark, and I was like, yes, sir. So sometimes you get a gift and you love the gift. I love this gift. This is great. Great. I get to wear it for a while. It has a big G on it, so people know I'm a Packer fan. This gift is great. I love it. I'm thankful for this gift. I hear people express thanksgiving for things. I'm thankful for Fill in the blank. Anything you're thankful for. And we see that at Thanksgiving a lot, right? But whatever you're thankful for has a source. So we should not only be thankful for things and circumstances, but we should also be thankful to God for them. Imagine getting a gift from a friend. Like they give you a gift card, okay? A friend gives you a gift card, and when they hand you that gift card, you take the card and then you're just so happy about this gift card and then you, you hug your gift card and you kiss it and you say to the gift card, I'm so thankful for you, gift card. I want to tell everyone about you, Mr. Gift Card. I'm going to show you to all my friends and they're going to be so happy for me that I have you, gift card. Because you're so grateful for the gift. What will your friend who gave you that gift card be thinking? Like, hey dude, over here, I know it's a cool gift card, but how about thanking the person who gave it to you? I genuinely want you to enjoy the gift card just as much as you are. That's why I gave it to you, because I know that it will give you joy, and I want you to have joy, but don't forget where it came from. Don't forget to thank me, the giver of the gift. Now, a friend wouldn't say that out loud because they're not in it for the thanks to themselves. But the thankfulness for the gift is one portion of joy. And the thankfulness to the giver is 
the fullest portion of the joy. And together, it makes the fullest joy. So we can't just be thankful for the gift. We also have to be thankful to the giver. We have something better than a gift card. We have the greatest gift of all, Jesus. And the giver of the gift is God the Father. But there is even another level to that transaction which makes it even more glorious and more wonderful, which we'll see later. But the point is this. If we truly understand the enormous nature of the gift, Jesus, then we will not miss the enormous nature of the giver, God our Father. And if we know that the enormous nature of the gift reveals the enormous nature of the giver, then we should not be able to resist giving the giver thanks. In Colossians chapter 1, we see this come to life. In verses 9 through 11, which we've already covered in previous sermons, in verses 9 through 11, they show us Paul's prayer for the church, which stresses the importance of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, That's from verse 9, or verse 10, I'm sorry. And living a life that is fully pleasing to him. And we are given elements of the Christian life that come from God in order to fulfill that godly life. And they are in verse 11. Strength with power from God's glorious might, endurance, patience, and joy. So what is the result of being given such helpful tools? God asks us, or or we're we're told here that we need to walk in a manner worthy of him and live a life that is pleasing to him. And he says, you can't do it on your own. You need my strength and my power that comes from my power, my glorious might and endurance and patience. And it comes in and with joy. And what is the result of being given such helpful tools? The result is we give thanks to God. And there's more than that, because when we talk about give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, it's really easy just to be like, okay, thanks God, done, now what, what next? Right? Like, it's just easy to say thank you, but he's not talking about saying thank you. He's talking about a heartfelt thanksgiving that comes from knowing, from experiencing, from seeing, from doing, and having a relationship with God where you experience certain things with God, particularly the things that happened before verse 12 walking in a manner worthy of him and living a life that is fully pleasing to him with his strength and endurance and patience and joy, if we're able to do that, the result is thanksgiving. But there's more to it. There's a deeper understanding there. Verse 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father. This is the sixth time in just 12 verses that Paul mentions the Father, and he's also mentioned Christ six times as well. And that observation is vital to our understanding, like Paul's theology here. He is constantly drawing our attention back to the Father, constantly drawing our attention back to the Son. He's constantly drawing us back to the source. God is the source of our power, strength, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. He's the one who produces our fruitful Christian living. He is the one who gives strength for endurance and for patience. He is the one who gives joy in endurance and patience. He is the one for whom we live this Christian life. His pleasure. You hear that? He's the one for whom we live this life. And I don't think we get that because I think the reality is most of us live our life for us. 
And we would even say, I live my life for God and my life, or, or we would at least be willing to admit, I try to live my life for God and I want to live my life for God, but I'm aware that I often live it for myself. That would be an honest Christian. You know, that's what Paul said. He's like, I want to do the things I'm supposed to do, but I can't always do the things I'm supposed to do. And there are times when I'm supposed to do this and I don't, and there are times I'm not supposed to do this and I do. He knows the struggle. He knows our struggle. Paul knows our struggle. He relates to us. And so we, we have this reality that we want to live a particular kind of life that aims at pleasing God, and we sometimes, I'd say oftentimes, fall short. But that is still our aim. His pleasure, God's pleasure, is our aim. And therefore, he is alone, he alone is the one to whom we give thanks. Because all that we have and all that we are and all that we do is his. Everything about us is his. Everything we offer him is his. Everything we own and possess is his. We have it because he gave it to us. It is his work, his plan, his strength, his joy, and it's all for his glory. And why does God deserve all the glory? Why does God deserve everything? And think about what God is and what he knows. Let me ask you a couple questions. Does God know everything? Yes. Is God all-powerful? Yes. So if God knows everything, is God fully aware of his own worth and value. Okay. Is God also then aware of our own, our particular worth and value? Yes. So, if God knows all things, and I just want to take a little caveat, or a little uh, sidetrack here, the only reason God knows all things is because everything that can be known is because God determines that it can be known. It's not like all knowledge exists and God goes, oh, knowledge, yeah, um, I know all that. He determines what is knowledgeable. The only reason there is something that's knowable is because he decides this is going to be a thing that's knowable. God doesn't submit to all knowledge. All knowledge exists because he determines that it exists. That is his sovereign rule over all of creation. All thoughts and ideas and everything that are expressed, everything we can know, everything he knows, and everything that we don't know that cannot be known, he knows because he determines it to be known or for him to know it. It's just I could go deeper into that. It's kind of mind-blowing when you really start exploring that. But if we take that and think about the fact that if God knows everything and he knows his own value and worth and he fully comprehends what he is and he fully understands our value and worth and knows what we are, it would be sin for God to look at you and say, you can have something other than me. He knows his own value. And because he knows his own value, he says, I should be glorified above all things. My worth and my value should be expressed through holiness for my uplifting, for my exaltation, for my glory. And if anyone looks at God and says, wow, God is a megalomaniac. He's a crazy, self-absorbed psychopath and, 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 uh, and he's, and he's a, a, a narcissist. Oh, he gets all the glory. What about us? God knows his own value and he knows our value and he looks at us and he looks at himself and he goes, yeah, it would be a sin if I told you that something else could be more valuable than me and should deserve the glory more than me. If God did that, 
he would be an idol. He would have an idol. He would be an idolater because he would be worshiping or giving praise and glory to something other than himself. And he can't because he knows his own worth better than we do. And he knows our worth and he looks at us and says, trust me when I tell you I am all that you need. Not only am I all that you need, I'm all that you should worship. And your whole life should be aimed at glorifying me. Well, God, I have other things. No, 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 no. You don't understand, people. You don't understand. Listen, as God, there are things I know about me and about you. And trust me, and then we, he gives us words that help us understand this in the Bible. Trust me, I'm the best thing for you. Your whole life should be aimed at pleasing me. If you do that, there is this great reward I have for you. That will literally blow your human mind so much I'll have to give you a new one. Like that, we, we, just, we just don't fathom the greatness of God, and, and I don't want to get into the depths of the grandeur of God today, but what I do want you to see is that if God really does know all things, and he is all-powerful, then it would only, only be appropriate if God demanded that he alone is glorified above everything and anything else. So just a little evidence for why we must glorify God, and that is vital, vital to our understanding of how we live the Christian life. And how the Christian life can be lived in a way that satisfies you and glorifies God. So one of the ways in which God looks at your life and says, I want you to glorify me. And our question should be, okay, well, how? We, of, we often live our lives with our own happiness or our, our own pleasure at the forefront of our mind. Our own well-being and our own happiness dictates our attitude, our motivation, how we relate to people, how we relate to the church, how we spend our time, what we say, who we say it to, and how we say it. Our own happiness rules our motivations and our own happiness rules our perspectives because that is all people want is to be happy. I had a friend in high school, I remember sitting at the dinner table with them and their family, and their mother said to me, all I want is for them to be happy. I remember at the time thinking to myself, that's foolish, because I was a Christian, and I understood that it's not about me. Uh, side note, I did not live my life that way, <laughs> but I knew in my mind that that was not, I was like, it's not, about your, it's not about your child. It's not about them being happy. It's about God being glorified, and I couldn't connect the two, God's glory and my happiness. I couldn't relate them to each other. All I saw was one or the other. God should be glorified. That's our priority. No happiness for you. It's not about you and your joy or you and your happiness. It's about God and his glory. And it doesn't matter if you don't get to, you don't get to be happy so God can be glorified. That was the way I, I thought. That's what I thought bef right before I got into ministry even. Until I read the Bible again. And I was like, look at scripture explode with the, the, the essence of joy all over it. Joy, joy, joy. I mean, look at, read the book of Philippians. It's all about our joy, regardless of our circumstances. From great blessings to difficult sufferings, joy, joy, joy is at the heart of it all. So what I'm saying is when we live our lives with our own personal happiness at the forefront of our mind, I'm still saying that's not right, but it's not that wrong either. The, the, the issue is what is our source of joy? That's the key component. Your happiness is the aim. Your joy is the aim. 
But the problem is our best happiness, our best happiness is not often what we pursue. We often pursue lesser joys, lesser ways to happiness. Our best happiness, our greatest joy is God in Jesus. And God knows that he is the most satisfying reality that we can know, right? So God knows all things and he looks at himself and he says, I am the only thing in this, in all of reality that can please you that can satisfy you, that can give you joy unlike anything else. Trust me, I'm the best thing for you. And if your aim in life is to just be happy, because no one wakes up in the morning and goes, man, I hope I have a miserable day. Because even if you thought, oh, I hope I have a miserable day, I love misery. What are you really excited about? The joy of misery. You can't escape it. We all want joy. Right? We can't escape the reality that all we want is to be happy. And it shows up because when we're miserable, we mope around and it's just, it, it, because we're having a rough day or a hard time and it, and it kills us and all joy just kind of deflates. And then we go watch a great movie and we get out of the movie and we go tell our friends like, oh, have you seen this movie? It's so good. Joy fills our heart. The things that we love and excite us fill our heart and make us happy. And that's okay. If God is your greatest joy, that's the key here. God knows that he is the most satisfying reality that we can know, have, possess, and enjoy. So he offers himself and his son, Jesus, as a means for us to be drawn into the presence of the Father through Christ, in whom, in the Father, in whom there is, Psalm 1611, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Do you hear the superlative nature of those two phrases? Fullness of joy, not partial joy, not full joy, fullness, totality of joy, no lack of joy, 100% joy fulfilled in the eternal presence of God our Father and in the presence of Christ the Son and pleasures forevermore. So they are not just fully full, they are endlessly forever full as well. That is our future, that is our hope, that is our promise, that the joys we experience in this life are minuscule compared to the joy we'll experience in the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So remember, his pleasure, his pleasure is our aim. Our aim is to please God with our life. Why? Because God's glory is our aim. And God's glory is our aim because God recognizes he alone is the most valuable worthy being in all of existence and demands our glory because if he didn't, he would be in sin to say that he doesn't. And he would be a liar because he knows that he does deserve all the glory. So our aim is to please him because God's glory is our ultimate aim. And he is glorified and all that pleases him. So we aim to please him so that he's glorified. The entire purpose and reason for, for your existence is to glorify God. God's glory is the entire reason for all of creation. From every star and the farthest point of the galaxy that is too far away for our most complex microscope or telescopes to find or to see to the most microscopic molecules in all of existence. There are molecules that we can't even get down and see far enough into. 
Every square inch of the universe from the, from the furthest to the closest, from the biggest to the smallest, was all created for God's glory and everything in between, including us. And I would say that more than includes us because we are the pinnacle of creation. We are the pinnacle of God's glory in creation. And believers, Christians specifically, are the pinnacle of God's glory in humanity because we are in Jesus. Because we're in Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate pinnacle of God's glory in all things. And we join in that being God's great glory on earth in all of creation because we are in Christ. Refer back to verse 2. To the saints and and faith, I'm sorry, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Why are we in Christ? 1 Corinthians 6:20. Why are we in Christ? For you were bought with a price. You're in Christ because you were bought by Christ. And what does that mean for my life now? 1 Corinthians 6:20, the second half of that verse. So, because you were bought with a price, because you're in Christ, so glorify God in your body. That's our life. Nothing else in all of creation has been bought. Nothing else in all of creation has been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And all of God's creation, only the human being, has the opportunity to reach that deeper level of God's glory because only the human being can receive the redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ. So more than the rest of creation, more than the rest of humanity, we, believers, Christians, are that which was created for the most glory. So that is our aim, God's glory. And we magnify God's glory when we please him with our life. So, what is most pleasing to him? What can we do that will please God the most? Well, we please God the most when we are most pleased by God. We please God the most when we are most pleased by God. Now that word pleased, by, by, by pleased I mean satisfied, fulfilled, pleasured, happiness. I'm talking about joy. Joy is the answer, but not just general happiness or joy in life. I mean, when I receive a paycheck, when you receive a paycheck, you get a little happy, right? You worked hard for it, you earned it, you get the paycheck, and you're like, eh, all right. And it brings you a little joy. When your children obey you, doesn't it feel good? You're like, all right, that worked. It's rare, but it worked. And it makes you a little happy, brings you joy. When your favorite team wins, oh man, when our favorite team wins, joy, Right? If you have any idea how hard I'm resisting talking about Thursday night's Packers game, just say joy, okay? There are endless means to joy and happiness in this life, but only God can provide eternal pleasure, satisfaction, happiness, and joy. So our personal aim as believers is joy. That is what we run after. 
That is our desire. That is our goal. That is our aim, regardless of circumstances, regardless of situation, regardless of the degree of suffering or trial or hardship you're in, regardless of the degree of blessing and, and opportunity that you have, whatever it is at any point in your life, our entire purpose, our entire function as human beings is to live in joy, to pursue joy, to pursue happiness and it's meaningful and it's powerful it's not just about you and your happiness it's about your joy representing the gospel to a world that doesn't understand god or understand themselves or understand a broken and fallen and sinful world so that when hardship comes your way when difficult things happen in your life when suffering or trial or anything any kind of burden or anything difficult happens in your life and you respond in joy because your joy is not just i'm happy about anything in life in in general, but that your joy is my satisfaction depends on, is relying on, falls into the person whom is Jesus Christ, and he does not change. He's not different than he was yesterday, and he will not be different tomorrow. He's perfect right now, and he is enough, and he is all that I need, and regardless of how hard my life is, I will praise God. I will find joy in him. I will be satisfied in him because he will not change. And so when hard things come and you, you lose something valuable or, or you, you're, you get fired from your job or your house burns to the ground or your child dies and, you're, and the world goes, how are you happy? How do you find joy in this? We can say through the tears that pour out of our face as we are miserably destroyed by such difficult circumstances, we can still say the joy of the Lord is my strength because regardless of what happens in my life, he has not changed. Amen. That is how we show the world the gospel, joy. And then when things are great, when your favorite team wins the big game or you get a bonus for a bonus check at work or your wife does something wonderful and you're like, oh, I love my life or your kids are great or, 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 or something, anything great happens in life. We don't go, oh, I'm so happy about that event or that event. I'm happy because God has blessed me. I know a guy in this church, every time he gets a paycheck, he says, the Lord has blessed us again. That's his response to getting paid by a client. That's a great attitude. That's a, the joy of the Lord is my strength kind of mentality. That joy is the filter for every event in your life. That is how we show the world the gospel, through joy. So our greatest joy is God in Jesus. Jesus gives us joy because Jesus gives us the Father. And in the Father's presence, there is eternal joy and pleasure. But that's eternal. That's eternal. That's the future. We're thinking about the future of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's our future hope in the presence of God. What about now? How do I get my greatest joy in God now so that he gets his greatest glory in me now? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Let me explain. Like I said earlier, that kind of seems too easy, doesn't it? Just give thanks to God. All right, everybody, if we all just shout on three, two, one, give thanks to God, and we all just shout. Okay, worship done, job achieved, check it off, you know, Check, it off, check off the box that says, uh, give thanks to God today. We, we know that that's not the way that God is. He's not just like, he doesn't want our rote mechanical religiosity. He doesn't want us just to check a box. He doesn't want us just to say thank you. He wants our thanksgiving. 
He wants us giving thanks for a reason, from a perspective, from a source, that our thanksgiving comes from our joy in him. And that we are joyful in him because we are also people who are thankful to him. And both joy and thanksgiving to God come from the same place. They both come from an understanding and knowledge of who God is and how he works in our life. Which is why back in verse 9, Paul said, I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That knowledge is incredibly important because without it, we can't understand our own reality, who God is and who we are and what's happening in our life. So we need the knowledge of God that comes from his word and the result will be experiences that produce joy and thanksgiving. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, thank you, God, and then you fulfilled your joy in God and glorified him the most. No, it's, it's not just that box that we check. Giving thanks to God, and I mean genuinely offering him your help, help your, genuinely offering him your heartfelt gratitude in various ways, is the product of one who recognizes and realizes and knows what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do and who he is. Genuine thanksgiving to God comes from the one who is satisfied in him. You can't thank him unless you're satisfied in him. And sometimes we thank God for some little thing that gave us some little joy, and that's okay. Usually our thanksgiving matches our joy, right? Like, you, like I, you know, I've... Like the paycheck. The paycheck comes, thanks God. You know, the paycheck's a repetitive thing. You get it all the time. It comes in. You expect it. It's not mind-blowing. It's just you expect it. It's the same number every time. You get it and you're like, thanks. The joy's not that high. It's pretty expected. So the Thanksgiving's not that high. Right? Your spouse gets cancer. Fights cancer. Battles cancer. And beats cancer. What do you do? You tell everybody. Because the joy is high for such a great outcome. And so the thanksgiving is high too. We match our thanksgiving to our joy. And how thankful you are to God is an outward thing that is measurable. You can see, you know, I know how thankful you are. Now, I know that you might be more thankful in ways that I don't see or ways that other people don't see, but our thanksgiving to God is pretty visible and it reveals our joy, where our joy is at. So genuine thanksgiving to God comes from the one who is satisfied in him. That thanksgiving matches the joy. And the one who is most satisfied in him is also most pleasing to him, most pleasing to God. And the reason you are pleased 
in him is because you recognize who he is and what he's like and all that he has done. You recognize that he fills us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and, and that he produces our fruit and that he increases our knowledge and that it is his might and power and that he endures through us and that he gives patience to us and that he fills us with joy in him. And the one who recognizes those things, the one who lives in those realities, the one who pursues God's word and thinks about God's word and prays to God and spends time in God's word and fellowships with the body and comes to church and grows and listens and lives and does ministry is filled with more and more joy joy. Why? Because they're living a life that is more and more pleasing to God. And I want to be careful that I'm not being legalistic in the sense that I'm saying those are the only ways to please God. Do those things and God is pleased. Check off the box. That's not biblical. What I'm saying is those things are evidence. They're fruit of someone who loves, who loves God and is satisfied in God and pursues God. Those are evidences. Those are products. Those are natural. I shouldn't even have to tell you to say, read your Bible, study your Bible, pray more, Spend time in the Word with your family, um, go to church, get involved in the ministry, serve the church, be loving, sacrificial. I shouldn't have to explain all those things. Actually, I should because the Bible tells me I have to. So it's my job to tell you those things. But it should be the natural product and fruit of someone who loves and lives for Jesus. So I don't want you to just do things. I want you to focus on Christ he will become your joy, and from that joy will be a massive outpouring and overflow of wonderfully biblical realities in your life. And when you watch God work through that, you will not be able to help but thank him. And I'm not just talking about saying, oh, thanks, God. I really mean it. Thank you, God. Does oh, such great work you did. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not just talking about the verbal affirmation of thanks. I'm talking about the heart that is filled with the expression of how do I, in human words and in human expressions, pour out this heart that is about to explode with how thankful I am to God for what he is doing. That is thanksgiving. And it does show up in your life. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, From the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. The beauty, listen to this, the beauty of the gospel is that the giver is the gift. It's like when a soldier comes home from overseas and surprises their loved ones. You've seen those videos, right? They do them in like big stadiums too, like big football games. And they'll bring out, you know, someone's just standing there. They have no idea why they're out there. And then up behind them comes like their spouse or their dad or something. And it's a soldier and he's back from overseas. And it's like, surprise. And the person sees him and is like, oh my gosh. And they fall down in like utter joy and like just like just overwhelmed with emotions. And you watch those videos and you're like, I'm not crying. You're crying, you know. It's like... It's really hard to watch those and not feel the emotion in that moment, the joy that fills that person's heart. Because the gift is the giver, and the giver is the gift. Except God in Christ is far better than even the world's greatest heroes. Because Jesus is the world's greatest hero. Far better than the return of your spouse from a trip. He's far better than the birth of your child. He's far better than any human could be a gift to us. Christ is God's gift to us. And in Christ, the reason he's such a good gift is because in Christ, we get the Father fully and completely. 
when the disciples asked Jesus, can we see the Father? He's like, uh, right here, dude. You're with me. Same thing. You lack nothing when you see me. You don't miss an, an, an ounce of the Father in my presence. John 10, 30, Father and I are one. So, meaning, we literally get the greatest gift and the greatest joy all wrapped up in one person, Jesus. And he supersedes all other gifts in our life. He is better than sports. He's better than food. He's better than water. He's better than family. He's better than a good job. He's better than life itself because he is life itself. John chapter 1 says that. He is the greatest gift. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now stop there. For God so loved the world, meaning God loves the world to maximum capacity. The degree in which, the highest degree in which God can love something, God loves the world. He looks at his creation and says, I love my creation. It's mine. I made it. I love it. Now there is a higher degree to which I would say he loves his children. And, but he looks at the world and says, I love this world so much. The Greek word for world there is cosmos, which means all of creation. I love it so much. How do I express my love? I have to give it something. I have to give it something. When, husbands, when you look at your wife and you're like, oh man, I just love that woman. Mm, she's pretty, she's smart, she loves me back, she gives me back rubs. We do things together. She's my best friend. What do you do? Do you go, hey, you're cool, and you walk away? No. What do you do? You go up to her, and you give her a big kiss. Right, men? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All for kissing in the church. Say amen. All right. Good. So, <laughs> spouses only. Anyways, uh, when you love something you want to give it something you love your wife you want to give her a kiss or a hug or give her words that express your feelings or give her a gift to show her how much you love her or do something like you know do some chore for her that will make her life easier you want to give her something that's how love is expressed that's how praise is expressed and god looks at the world and says i love it what do i do i gotta give it something what should i give it well if he gave us oxygen you could say wow i really need that to survive but we still go to hell i mean like it doesn't save us it might save us in a physical sense but it doesn't save us spiritually eternally so god says the degree to which i love you is going to be matched by the degree of the gift so how much does he love us infinitely deep his love is for you why because the gift he gave us is an infinite gift the end the for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the gift. Himself. He gives us himself in Christ. There is no greater gift. The gift itself matches and reveals the degree to which God loves you. That is nuts. That he loves you to the degree in which he's willing to offer up his own son's life. Jesus, the son of God, spent eternity past in the presence of God the Father in perfection. Now think about this for a moment. We think about time. We think about eternity past, which I always I bring this up a lot. 
because it's such a mind-blowing concept, but I'm going to take it a step further today. We think about eternity past, that before the creation of anything, God the Father, Son, and Spirit lived in perfect harmony and unity and glory and love and beauty, and I could go on and on with, with descriptive words that explain their joyful presence together and their satisfaction in one another and the reality that they never began. They never began. But in that infinite eternal state we still think of them as like living in succession of moments don't we we think of god the father son and spirit before the world's created before time was created they existed outside of time there was no time restricting them time was a creation that god made for our existence and for our reality and what god decided and what god i'm sorry what god lived in all three the triune god and all three persons lived in before the creation before time was the absence of time. And in our minds, we think about that as, and we can understand, hey, there was no beginning, but it's still a hard idea to fathom. So I want to make that idea a little easier to fathom. We still think of God, the triune God, existing before time as existing in a succession of moments. We still put him in time. We still think God the Father, Son, and Spirit existed moment after moment after moment after moment after moment. We have to think that way. That's the only way we can conceive of reality. It's the only reality we have. That even though we recognize there was no time restricting the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father in their perfect, glorious state before creation of time, we still can't help and we still can't resist but put them in and think of them in existing in moment by moment by moment successions of time. And because of that reality, we think that we can't understand how they didn't have a beginning. Because we can't get that even as they existed... Before the creation of time, there was no moment by moment by moment succession of moments for them. That didn't exist. That wasn't a reality that isn't God's reality. And we cannot grasp that concept. That he, all of time is just like a wristwatch on his hand. He's like, time, dictated by me. He lives outside of it. There is no moment by moment, which, and because we can't understand reality without moment by moment succession of time, we therefore can't understand a God who has no beginning. So before time began, this infinite God looked at us and said, I'm going to create time. And this Son, this God, Jesus, the Son of God, before he became a human, existed for eternity past. Now, again, for us, I think we kind of think like, oh, that's like a gazillion, quadrillion, bazillion years. It's not. It's infinite. There is, it's not, again, it's not a succession of moments or time. It's just no time, just perfect joy and glory in an eternal, non-timed state where the Son looks at the Father and says, you are the most beautiful thing and I love you. And the, son, the Father looks at the Son and says, you are the most beautiful thing and I love you. Why? Because they're the same. The Father loves himself and the Son. The Son loves himself and the Father and the Holy Spirit is the love that is between the Father and the Son and they are perfectly triune, same God, one God, three persons, three distinct persons but the same God in one and the three distinct persons exist as a means for God to be glorified within himself by expressing love on another for himself because he himself is in the son and vice versa and so the son for eternity past 
had lived in that beautiful, glorious, joyful expression of unfathomable reality. We can't even understand it. The glory of that triune God living in himself in the fullness of joy and love expressed in all the goodness of God is mind-blowing. We cannot perceive it with our human, with our human minds. We just can't. And the Son says, and the Father says, the Son will, listen to this, give it up. It's not even, hey, the Son is going to go into humanity, become a human, live a perfect life so that the law is fulfilled, die a sacrificial death like a lamb, like a perfect lamb that is slain, die for the sins of his people, Resurrect from the cross, and then you can come back to heaven and, and, and leave that fleshly body behind and come back to this perfect unity and joy without the flesh, back into this eternal state with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and just kind of come back to us after like, you know, 30 years or so. It's not what happens. All of that happens, and when Jesus dies and Jesus resurrects from the grave, you know what he gets? A new body. He doesn't leave the old body behind and then just go back to being the son in spirit, and no longer Jesus the man. He keeps the human body forever. The son of God, for eternity past, lived in the joyful existence of the father, son, and spirit within itself, and leaves that to enter time for eternity. That's love. He decided, I'm going to become the creature that I created, the perfect version of it, so that they can be the perfect version of it. That's my gift to the world. That's my love. If that doesn't bring you joy, I'm just going to jump on a limb here. You're not a Christian. Or if, if, it, if you're like struggling with that making joy, making that your joy, then, then maybe there's other things going on in your life. Okay, so I'm not going to flat out say you're not a believer if that doesn't bring you joy because maybe you're sad today, but that ought to bring you joy. That ought to raise your spirits. That ought to make you say, man, all the things that I think about in life that bring me troubles and trials and hardships and difficulties and things that I struggle with and the little problems I've got going on in my life, I look at them and I go, I have Jesus. I know that's not how we live our life, right? You have to deal with things. I get it. But what I'm saying is like the, in the grand scheme of things, this God gave himself up to become a human for eternity. For me. And why for me? Because when he does it for me, he gets the glory. God did it for his glory. Not just because he loves you, but that, that expression of love brings him the most glory. And that is the beauty of the gospel. So what makes Jesus such a great gift? That. That makes Jesus a great gift. In Jesus, we get God. We get the Son of God coming, and Jesus says, everything you need in the Father, you get me. That's what makes Jesus such a great gift. We get the Father, we get the Son, and we get the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we get God, and that is why he is the greatest gift. So what is it about the, this gift, about this God, Jesus, that makes him so valuable? Well, Jesus is the most efficient and the most dynamic expression 
of power to have ever existed. But he is more than just an expression of power. He is power. Power is sourced in him. He alone determines what degree power can exist in. Any power that you have, and I mean even electrical power or spiritual power or physical power, whatever kind of power there is, is determined by him. And he is its source and he determines that that power is even a reality. All power and strength and might come from him. He's the lion. He rules the jungle that we call existence. That's why the Bible calls him the lion, because he's a sovereign God who rules and reigns. And he's also the lamb, the one who went from ruler to humble servant for God's glory and for your joy. Jesus is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And Jesus is God. John 10, 30, the Father and I are one. So Jesus is our God who loves us. He is the Father's best expression of his love for us. And his death for our sins is the pinnacle of that expression of his love for us. Jesus is everything we aspire to be. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, fully and completely filled with the Spirit, and lived as the Spirit directed him in submission to the Father as an example for us and how we ought to live, that we also should be living by the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to the Father as the Spirit produces love for us from God and love to God in us and causes our obedience that's Ezekiel 36, 27, that the Spirit will cause our obedience and he causes our obedience when we submit to him, when we trust him. Psalm 37, 5, commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him and he will do what? He will act. Trust and obey and God will act. That is the most beautiful formula in the entire Bible. Think about it. Do you obey God? Not perfectly. None of us do. We try, but obey him and trust him. Now, those two realities need deeper exploration, which we're not going to do today. Obey him and trust him. When you do, he'll act. Because when you obey him and you trust him, you'll get whatever you want. You'll get anything you ask for. I promise you, you obey him and you trust him and you get anything you want. Period. Why? Because when you obey him and you trust him, you are in his will. You are living according to his purpose. You have the mind of Christ. So when you ask for things, you're asking for the will of God. And when you ask for the will of God, God goes, duh, yeah, we're going to do that. Yes, I'm going to fulfill that because it's my will. And you're praying for my will because you're living in the mind of my son. And you're obeying and you're trusting me. And with that mentality and with that perspective, it shapes the way you ask questions. It shapes the things you request of me. And it shapes them into my will. And therefore, I will give you whatever you want because it's what I want. That's the Christian life too. So God, the Holy Spirit, moves and acts and thinks perfectly He does so perfectly in Jesus, and so Jesus was the perfection of the human experience. He was and is all that we aspire to be. He's humble, yet sovereign. He rules, yet submits to the Father. He is obedient. He is perfectly holy and righteous. There is no wrong in him. There is no uncertainty in him. 
He is, complete, he is completely secure. He has a, a security in his personality that none of us have. And, and, and he does not carry around that insecurity in his personality like we do. He knows who he is. He knows who the Father thinks he is. And that is enough for Jesus. He was so secure that when Pilate asked him if he is God, he didn't even answer him. He was like, I don't care what you think. I don't have to answer you. You know what I would have been like? Yeah, 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 I am. I swear, I swear, I swear I am. Dude, why don't you believe me? I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you. And then turn him into a frog. I don't know. Like, he could have done whatever he wanted. He didn't need to. Didn't want to. Didn't have to. Just so sure of who he is and what his purpose was. Thinking to himself, if I answer this question to Pilate, are you God? Are you who you say you are? Are you who they say you are? And he goes, yeah, that's me. And I can stop this from happening. I can stop this death from happening. He could, but it wasn't God's will. And he had to obey God's will. And so he dies. He's so sure, so secure in himself. He's so secure in the Father. He's so secure in the Father and what the Father wants that he's like, I'm just going to do what the Father wants. Because I trust him so much, I know the result of doing what the Father wants. That is a maximum and ultimate human personality security. That is a security that none of us have. But it's a security that we can grow in and gain and become in Christ. And Jesus, Jesus is our peace. He, he is a peace beyond our understanding, according to Philippians. And he is the definition of joy. He's the best expression of joy. He, even, in, even as he dies and is murdered on the cross, he expresses and reveals joy. He's patient, not just for his own good, but patient with us in our sinfulness, expressing his kindness to us in that patience as he waits for our repentance, and he's good. He's good in all ways. There is no evil or sin in him. He is more good than the world's purest diamond is pure. He is faithful to his father, faithful to the father's will, and faithful to his bride, the church. That's us. He's faithful to us. He's faithful in all things. His way is gentle and kind and compassionate, yet his righteous anger is stirred by evil and hatred for abhorrent sin. And he is perfectly stable in his delivery and self-control. His words are the perfect articulation of the will and the way of the Father, and thus John 1, 1 says, he is the word. He is the apex of obedience, wisdom, endurance, conviction, and devotion. His grace is greater than all our sins, and his life is the fullest and most complete version of forgiveness, mercy, and grace. He is meek, yet lacks nothing in strength and might. He is the greatest preacher to have ever lived. Can you imagine sitting under Jesus' sermons? Can you imagine how awesome that would be? If Jesus walked in this room right now and said, it's my turn to preach, we would all just be like, what? Beautiful sermons. Beautiful preacher, because every word that comes out of his mouth is true. And there's no sin in him. He is meek, yet lacks nothing in strength. Think about that. Meek and yet powerful. 
humble yet strong. They sound contradictory, yet the Son of God can hold them all in his hand and be both of them at the same time. He is the most profound revelation of zeal for truth. He's the most profound revelation of zeal for truth. No one has been more zealous for truth in the history of humanity than Jesus Christ. And though he expresses such zeal for truth, he is also understanding and long-suffering and temperate and tactful. Why? Because he's the greatest teacher. His teaching reaches the highest level of virtue, yet his sensitivity enables him to endure our disobedience because he understands the hardship of facing temptation. And he knows that we are not yet fully like him and that we fail. And in that failure, his grace not only covers our failure, but his grace is the means by which he also lifts us up to fight through disobedience and to endure temptation and to live in and live out his victory over our sin by fighting the good fight, by pursuing righteousness, and by clinging to the cross where we find our sinful nature lying dead. And then he brings us to the foot of the cross, to the foot of his cross, and points to our dead sinful nature and says that is not who you are anymore and then he leads us to the tomb to see that it is empty to see who we ought to be to see who we are to see the resurrected Christ and then and thus to see the resurrected us And with that assurance of victory that he gives us, he uses the full expression and totality of all he is and who he is in us to produce in us godliness and righteousness so that in him we would no longer be burdened or hardened or hurt by sin, but that we would be holy and in being holy, shame and guilt and the agony of suffering And our sin would fade as we are filled with joy in him. That is why he is our joy. That is why he is our pleasure. And that is why it is our aim to please him. And that is only a portion of who Jesus is. But that is who he is. And we get him. We get this Jesus that I just described to you. And we get to have him, the greatest gift, to live in us, to work through us. And for us to have and to hold and to enjoy, not only for eternity, but today. What does this have to do with thanking God? For this Jesus... For this gift giver, God the Father, who gives us himself as the gift in his son Jesus, for getting this greatest gift, we ought to thank God our Father. How could we not? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you've given us a gift that we cannot give back so instead what do we give back our lives 
our obedience, our joy, our satisfaction, our, our aim to please you. We give to you all our pleasures. We give to you our families, our church, our, our, our everything, everything about us. Our job, we hand it over to you. Our money, we hand it over to you. Our fellowship, we hand it over to you. Our prayers, we give to you. Our worship, we give to you. Our children, we give to you. Our parents, we give to you. Everything is yours. We give it to you. And we thank you that you handle it well and that you give back to us the greatest gift we could ever have, your son, Jesus. Give us hearts that are thankful, not just hearts that say thank you, but hearts that understand the depth of who Jesus is and thus, in return, can't help but thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. See ya.